Welcome to Behavioral Groups, the podcast that explores our human condition. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We talk with researchers and other interesting people to unlock the mysteries of our behavior by using a behavioral science lens. Okay, Tim, what if that behavior is for our future self? Do we unlock those mysteries as well? Um, of course we do. I mean, we're here to unlock the mysteries of all behavior, big, small, present, future. You know, we're mystery unlockers. Basically. <laughs> well, that's good since my future self is going to need a lot of help given all the trouble that my past and current self are getting it into. <laughs> well, my time traveled friend, <laughs> you are in luck uh, because this week's guest is Hal Hirschfield, who has over a decade of groundbreaking research looking into how we view our future selves and has curated that research into this great new book called Your Future Self, How to Make Tomorrow Better Today. Hal is a professor of marketing, behavioral decision-making, and psychology at UCLA's Anderson School of Management and holds the UCLA Anderson Board of Advisors term chair in management. His research, which sits at the intersection of psychology and economics, examines the way that we can improve our long-term decision-making. Our future selves definitely need his help. Oh, we do. Oh, yes. <laughs> Yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the interesting pieces that Hal talks about is that we often see our future self as some kind of stranger. And that, you know, this ends up leading to sorts of problems and potentially detrimental behavior for how we act and make our decisions today, like for our present selves. Yeah. And, and we talked with Hal about an idea, and we will discuss this in our grooving session as well. It's the idea that our future self isn't who we are today. And that concept can either be very liberating or very scary. Okay, let, let's let's not scare the listeners away just scary. yet. Scary. <laughs> just our future selves are not us. Oh my god. No. Okay. So our future selves will be scared though when we discuss this with Hal. Maybe not. I don't know. Okay, well we'll we'll see. I suppose we should just kind of get into the conversation with Hal. Yeah, because we're really screwing up our future selves with this, this conversation <laughs> as we're giving. All right, so Groovers, please sit back with a tall, frothy pour of your future self and enjoy our conversation with Hal Hirschfield. Hal Hirschfield, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Hey, thank you so much. I'm excited to talk to you guys. We're excited as well. And we've got to find out first and foremost, do you prefer coffee or tea? Oh, coffee. <laughs> Instantly. Not, 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 a, not a doubt. <laughs> yeah. wow. It's not that I don't have tea, but coffee. Coffee. Okay. Coffee. All right. <laughs> this is a much more important question than the coffee or tea question. That was pretty uh, important, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all right. Um, Guster or the National? Oh, the national now. <laughs> now uh, the sad I mean, dance. Yeah, so. not not <laughs> yeah. ten years ago though, right? No, uh, no. Or we'll, 20, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll talk. We'll talk about. We might talk about that later. Yeah, so there you sure, go. sure, sure. Okay, so does seeing a rendering of what you'll look like in twenty or thirty years help you make better decisions today? It certainly can. So, you know, this is something that my you know collaborators and I have been exploring for for years now. The idea is, can we? get people to think more vividly and emotionally about their future selves. Uh, so we've played around with um, age progression technology, mm -hmm. showing people what they would look like. Yeah. You know, by the way, this has gotten so much better. Has it? Uh, 
Yeah. I mean, when I first the technology started, itself, the technology, <laughs> when I first started doing this, I mean, we were working with a graphic artist and this and that. It was, we actually, my wife, my wife and I just came across some old files and there was like a printout of my aged images from 12 or 13 years ago. Is it, is it like the ones in the book? Uh, it's, it's like those ones, but like it go, it's like a little bit more, uh, fine grained and, um, okay. There was one that was supposed to be me in the mid my mid fifties, and my wife. My, like, I don't think she was thinking too much about it, but she was like, "Huh, you look a lot older now than than the projection had you looking." <laughs> oh, I look like that, and you're not there yet. Nice, nice. Okay. Ouch. Um, no, but the you know the idea is okay. That that's something that can help make a possible abstract future self a little bit more concrete. Yeah, you know, and we've. We've shown that the exposure to these images can boost intentions to save. And then this, we have a paper, it's, it's, it's been in the works for a long time, but it was with a, you know, it was a field study in Mexico. And what we found there is that people who are banking customers exposed to these images were a little bit more likely. They were about 16% more likely to make a contribution to a retirement account. I, you know, I'm always careful when I talk about this stuff because it's not, it's not a um, panacea. It's right. not like uh, all right. the problems right. in the world are solved if I just see myself older, you know. And in fact, <laughs> with Snapchat and FaceApp and all these things, anyone can do it, but it's got to be the right yeah. context. And I suspect, and this is something that we'll, you know, maybe get into, but research down the line we'll look at is, you know, who does this work better for and for whom is it yeah, and, more? And, and when yeah. and all of those things. And I think we'll, exactly. we'll definitely want to explore that line of thinking, but we have one last speed round question. Oh, I'm sorry. And, that was a no, speed no, round. I didn't no, mean to go notice, so long. Notice this. It doesn't matter. Our speed rounds are never speedy. I think out of maybe one out of 10 is ever speedy, Tim. I don't know. We're, sorry, we're, sorry. One out of a hundred. never there. Anyway. Okay. What, what is more accurate, your prediction of an event or someone else's experience of a similar event? Yeah. What the research suggests is the someone else. Yeah. Yeah. And, and why is that? Why, why can't we just go ahead and just imagine this future event like as well as could be imagined? We're just not that good at simulating the future. <laughs> we do it, you know, we, we make a million little, or not a million, but there's a number of mistakes that we make. Dan Gilbert, Tim Wilson, and others have, have really done a great job comprehensively documenting those type of mistakes. And so, but we think... I, I know I can predict the future better, yeah. my own future better than some right. somebody else who's done the same thing. You know, of course, <laughs> it's my future, right? I should be in control of it. I know what I want to be. I know what I want to do. That's going to be the reality that it is. And and actually, when what as what you're saying is the research, nah, yeah, doesn't really point yeah. to that, right? So, and we want to uh, think we're so unique, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, get in line. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, so, so the book is called Your Future Self, and I have to admit, there was a you know, there's sort of a visceral reaction, like, why do we need a book about our future selves? Like, I already know my future self because it's me. Mm. Like, I, I know me, don't I? I mean, what's the problem with that logic? That's you know, that's funny that it's I. I I really appreciate that visceral response, right? Because I think it really speaks to uh, an interesting thing that happens that, you know, if you ask people to think about who will they be over time and who were they, I think on the surface, we just say, it, I'm, I am me, like I am who I am. But when you stop and think about it, I think that may really, can really get kind of confronted. Like, uh, has your name changed at all? Have you moved, you know, or do you have different interests? Are your preferences the same? Have your values shifted? 
your career. And all of a sudden, I'm not so sure that there's just, you know, one you. And that can be, I think that can be almost existentially a little bit terrifying. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Bring it on. <laughs> Tim loves the anything existential. So you can just, you, you, you captured him there. One of the things that you, you talk about in the book is the idea that our future self being different people altogether, that that, that should be a comforting thought. And, and to that point, we just kind of go, well, for some people, it might not feel that comforting. It may feel more terrifying that that future person isn't the person who I am today. But why should that be comforting? I find it comforting because I think it suggests that we can grow mm-hmm. and change. And I think on some levels, we hope for that. And we know that. But if I, if I sort of stop and say, well, I, you know, I am who I am. I'm the same. Logically speaking, that, that makes it a little bit harder to then, you know, to truly grow and to truly change. And the idea that there can be different versions of me and there can be things that connect us together. It's not like I'm yes. going to wake up tomorrow with, with no memories and none of my same values or any of that. But if there's some strands of connection, but I am different in some ways over time, I think it really presents the possibility that we can implement changes into our lives to make us more of the people we want to be. Well, and see, that makes me think about, you wrote about Plutarch's great story of the ship of Theseus, and you talk about John Locke's philosophy as well. So, okay, I'm going to go on the philosophical side. By the way, first thing, cool, you're a marketing (laughs) professor, and you're talking about that shit in your class. I think that that's fantastic. Um, But but is, you know, to what degree do you uh, sort of buy into Locke's approach about basically our memory is sort of the tether that kind of keeps our identity going. I, so I, I mean, it's a nice, <laughs> it's a nice idea that lock. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he was a decent he chap. Thought, he thought some stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, look, th- there's something to that, but of course I think it becomes problematic when we start thinking about it more, you know, like I, I, you know, the, the, the thinking of course, is that what binds us over time is the memories that we hold. But I don't remember anything from before I was five. And does mm-hmm. that mean that like, that's just not me, you know? And like, uh, I frankly could not tell you what I had for lunch 48 hours ago. Yeah. <laughs> Is that guy like, there's just some other guy ate lunch? You know, it's not, it just doesn't fit. And then, you know, the other thing is that what happens when, you know, in 10 years, my, my self in 10 years, I'm in my mid fifties in 10 years, he can remember things that happen now when I'm in my mid-40s. And right now I can remember things that happened when I was in my mid-30s. But what if future me can't remember the mid-30s? What, that's a really weird conundrum there. And is there no connection between them? And so the memories idea, that there's something to it, but it's, it doesn't really fully bear out, I think, when pushed. Well, and I think there's also this aspect of the research that we know on memories right now, right? It isn't just this picture that is constant and real, it gets reformatted. And and that memory that we have might not actually be what really happened. And it gets mixed with others. And we kind of interpret different pieces of it, and all of the factors that come into memory. So so is that memory of uh, that I have that isn't actually what occurred? Am I now a different person because my memory is different from that person? So it, right. to your point, right. I think that that line of of reasoning is 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 kind of uh, has some faults in it has some yeah. has some chasms that kind of you have to get over. So, which brings me to my next question, though, is so: is there such a thing as true self, particularly as that self changes over time? 
it is. I mean, could could we have a, a full podcast series just on that <laughs> question, right? Um, we, let's we, go. We like let's the go. small, little, easy to answer questions, Hal. Just those, right. you know, yes, no things. That's what we go for. Does a drink come with this question? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, so I mean, I think this is obviously something that's been debated, you know. And in the book, one of the things that I really sort of talk about and an idea that I subscribe to comes from the research of Nina Strominger, who I think is just an incredibly creative researcher. She and her collaborator, Sean Nichols being uh, her main one, talk about essential moral traits, the essential moral self, if you will. Now, this is all about thinking about what do I point to in others that makes me say that's their true self? Mm. And the thinking is that there are certain elements of the self that we can kind of boil down the essence if you will you know like tim you're you seem to guffaw you must have a good sense of humor you know and like that's you know if 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 in two years we got in a call and you were morose and never laughed oh. once i might say what's wrong that's not man? tim like yeah, tim's no. changed it's the somehow the core of tim is no longer there and so you know the thing I like about this general idea is that it suggests that there can be all these surface level changes. Tim, maybe you wake up and you decide to be Steve, but you still have that laugh, you know? And, <laughs> you know, and, and I mean, honestly, Kurt, so the same thing could be said for you. And so it's like those essential moral traits, I think maybe the closest we can get to, at least in pointing to others, are saying that's, I think, part of the true self there. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I find it really interesting. In my own life, I have recently, in the last year, I changed jobs and moved across the country. I live in Charlotte, North Carolina now. I used to live in Minneapolis. Mm. I used to do 30 to 50 gigs a year as a musician, uh, as, a, as a hobby. And I've only played once in Charlotte in the last nine months. And when I talk to friends, they have this question. How could you not? How could you not be playing? How could you not be recording your next record? How, you know, like you are, a, you know, an artist at heart. And it's it's really hard. It's been hard for me, actually. It's yeah. a bit of an existential crisis. Like, am I still me? Yeah. What what, what <laughs> happened to all that passion? Yeah, it's, it's really funny. I think actually, I think that actually represents a little bit of a, of a funny asymmetry where, you know, sometimes the things we do can also be especially from our own perspective, those can be thought of as like, that is, that, you know, that is me. And, you know, I wonder, I, I wonder, like, if pushed, like, your friends might say, well, as long as he still finds the same jokes funny, like, he's still him, and, like, maybe he's on a musical hiatus, <laughs> you know? Um, but, yeah. Still trying to figure that one out. Yeah, Tim, um, I just think you might have realized how good your music is, and you're just, like, you know, saving it up for, for the, the big release. So. If, if only, if only I would ever, if, if, if someone maybe other than me would realize how great my songs are. All right, so, so um, Hal, I want to get, I want to talk a little bit more about the book. We kind of talked some big philosophical pieces yeah. on, on who we are and ourself and future and, and present and all of that kind of stuff. But the second section of the book, you kind of talk about this idea of time traveling in our mind and different pieces of this. And you have three cleverly named time travel mistakes that we make. And I just want to talk about, you know, we miss our flights, 
we engage in poor trip planning and we pack the wrong clothes. Can you summarize just for our listeners real quick a little bit about that and what yeah. why those are mistakes and what do they do for, you know, why why are they mistakes? Yeah, so I mean, right, so we, you know, start with this idea of time travel. It's not, of course, not real time travel. It's mental yeah. time travel. Um, I think I think that's probably clear. Um, <laughs> good, good, clar- good clarification. Clarification, yeah. Um, look, I use these sort of analogies to help understand the types of mistakes that we make these you know quote unquote time travel mistakes which aren't just time travel mistakes they they bear out in like real you know concept with real consequences as as i think we'll get into but so basically missing your flight the thought there is that it, it's almost as if you're in the airport and you get a little early for your flight and you go to the bar and you have a beer and then before you know it you're like three beers deep and you've m- missed your flight now the funny thing about that is it's it's as if you've just completely failed to take your trip applied to mental time travel, it's like you get stuck in the present. Mm. You're anchored on the present, not even really thinking deeply about the future. Now, the the sort of, you know, next level is what I call poor trip planning. It's like I've I've thought about the future. I've 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 planned my trip out. I'm gonna go to Boston, but then I I get there and I realize, oh my God, I've I've completely forgotten to make any plans. Like I take my <laughs> trip, I get there and I'm, oh I mean, is it a big deal? Not really, I don't know, but I have to spend like a decent chunk of my days planning my trip while I'm there. It's probably not that efficient use of a time. So in terms of our own mental time travel, the idea here is that I think about the future, but I don't do so in all that deep of a way. Procrastination, by the way, is a perfect example of this where Mm -hmm. I say I will do that thing next week you know like that's when i'm finally going to submit i've got to do this like reimbursement for my son's preschool it's like that's when i'm going to submit that paperwork well that's not really being that fair to my future self or thinking about that deeply because i haven't done it for the last three or four months like i'm probably not going to do it next week you know now the the final one is i I call it packing the wrong clothes so now i'm planning for the future i've i've sort of done the plans i've like actually done something right it's, you know, that we used to live in Chicago. It was like, we were, I remember we were in Chicago. We planned, we were going away. I forget where we were going, somewhere warm. And you're packing and you're like, I know it's going to be warm there, but I, I can't help but notice that it's 19 degrees outside. It's really cold. So I, I better throw, you know, a couple sweaters in just in case, you know. <laughs> the nights will get cold wherever then we're it going. It could be right? chilly yeah. at night, you know, yeah. a light yeah. sweater. Now, the funny thing there is that I find this one to be really quite pernicious because... I convince myself that I'm thinking deeply about the future, but in doing so, what I'm what I'm actually doing is using my present day emotions and feelings and unfairly projecting them ahead onto a future self who may change and may have different preferences from me. And that's, I mean, that's really not yeah. that fair to him either. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so how do we how do we get around that? Yeah, I mean, this is uh... <laughs> again super easy questions. Super for easy you. Questions. No, no hard ones here. We're making it easy. Well, I mean, look for that that last one, the packing the wrong clothes. I mean, I, I'm sure we'll talk about some of the solutions. You know that the research has suggested. Honestly, to me, one of the big things there is the the recognition that our preferences do change. I don't think mm-hmm. that still solves the problem, but mm-hmm. you know, one of the issues that arises is when we forget that things will change and we make these plans and then somehow are surprised yeah. <laughs> that yeah. that things have changed. You know, when I was working on that section of the book, I talked to a palliative care doctor, BJ Miller, 
who is just, I mean, I don't know how to say this. And this isn't meant to sound dark, but like if I were to have to, to if I were to have to be at the end of my life, he would be the one I'd want to mm. have. That's cool. Taking care of me. Um, and I had asked him, you know, when do, when do end of life plans go wrong? And, you know, he said, it's not when people don't plan, it's when they plan and then they're somehow surprised that things change. Yeah. And it's like, oh shit, I, this isn't what I was expecting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and he said, you know, that they go right when, when people have a, a mature view of time is the way that he put it to me. And I love that idea. Basically mm. I can plan, but I also have to recognize that things change as the years tick by, as the decades go on and then update those plans yeah. and move with them. And I, I thought that was such an interesting antidote to projection bias, which is what researchers call it, the packing the wrong clothes, you know, the sort of analogy that I came up with. But anyway, <laughs> no, it's a but lot. I think that I think that's, that's really I think that's really fascinating to think about that. This this idea that goes back to again, it's like, all right. So you land in Florida after packing a, a suitcase full of sweaters and Okay, so do I suffer through that or do I go out and buy some t-shirts? And I might have to change my plans that were, you know, I thought were laid really well back in Chicago, but <laughs> now they're not, right? And so... But Kurt, I think that is such a great, great point because who hasn't had that experience where you get on a trip and you realize you forgot to pack something and you're like, yeah. I guess I'm just screwed. And it's like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not brushing my teeth for two weeks. Uh, yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> hope no one's that close to me. But, you know, or you go out and get that thing. I mean, I'm not, we're not talking about, like, I get it. There's big things. I don't want to spend all yeah. that money. But, like, yeah, yeah. we could change. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and I think that, that it's, a, it's a nice analogy and it kind of works. And and going back to the procrastination part that you talked about, and, I, and you mentioned Tim Urban in your book as well. Yeah. And I think yeah. he has the best little, you know, things about, so oh, good. Uh, Thursday, Tim will do this, but then Thursday, Tim comes and goes. Oh well, no. Uh, Friday, Tim will do this, and and you just keep kicking that thing down the road. Because why is Friday, Tim, more likely to do it than Thursday, Tim, versus Saturday, Tim, right. versus you know, right? And and right. it's it's interesting because it it does uh, uh, kind of point to the fact that at some point, you know, one of the Tims is going to have to do it if it's ever going to get done, but. You know, well, it's a wonderful how, trick we play on ourselves too, <laughs> thinking that somehow future versions of me will be stronger, better, more efficient, you know, more <laughs> likely to take care of the stuff I've got piling up. Like th that guy definitely will hit my email inbox, you know, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Jerry Seinfeld did the nighttime guy, right, morning guy right, thing. Like th that was right. just perfect. You know? It's we'll, so good. It's so uh, good. When we were in our pre prep discussion, we were talking about different things that we thought were important in the book. And Mary, our producer, brought up the uh, letter to yourself, the, yeah. to your future self. Yeah. Uh, she um, she wrote a, a letter to her future self when she was 15. Yeah. So, wow. so Mary actually wrote a letter to her future self when she was 15 and then opened it when she was 25 and, you know, had kind of a profound re response to it. Is, do, you, do you think it's a good tool? Is it a tool that's underutilized? And what couldn't we get from from doing something like that? That is so cool that she did that. You know, because I, I interviewed Anne Napolitano, a, a author in writing the book, who who since sort of, you know, when 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 I interviewed her, she had, she had already had some best selling books out there, but then her most recent book got picked by the Oprah Book Club, and she she's like blown up. <laughs> wow, HBO just remade. You know, so I've 
I thought, wow, I'm glad I got to her when I did. But she, um, <laughs> she did this too when she was 14. She wrote a letter to herself at 24, and each, you know, every 10 years she opens the past one and writes a new one. And when I talked to her about it, it was so interesting because she she had said, "Oh my God, some of the early letters are so sad. Like the amount of amount of." the amount of attention she put on to other people's feelings, you know, mm. um, and like these sort of like um, societally driven milestone markers. And she said, you know, I had all these things that I wanted to have happen by the time I was in my 30s. And none of those happened. And I was qu- still qualitatively happier then than I was when I was in my <laughs> mid-20s, you know? And- <laughs> wow. And wow. now there's a, you know, there's a couple of insights here. So what the the research suggests, I've actually, you know, I've done some work where you've had people write letters to their future selves. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's a newer technique that I that it seems like it works better, which is having people write a letter to their future self and write one back from their future self to their present self. I uh-huh. I briefly mentioned this um, in yeah. a book. Now, what's what's really interesting is the you know the story from Anne Napolitano and from your producer, Mary, there's another element there, which is not only writing the letter, but then essentially being around to get the old letter. Then that's different than writing one back from your future self. You're now having like a, almost a conversation through time. And there's other, other work that tangentially is examined. What happens when we open up uh, time capsules, if you will? Yeah. You know, you can you can sort of imagine what we're talking about when we say time capsule. One of the surprising findings is that the act of opening up a time capsule, even from two months ago, three months ago, it calls to mind ordinary experiences that we might have otherwise forgotten. And it turns out that those those really add up to well-being. They, you know, and we don't have a hard time thinking that we'll look back on extraordinary experiences. Like I, I, I never for one minute at my wedding thought I'll never remember this day. <laughs> <laughs> never. Nope. Nope. All those pictures I won't ever look uh, at. None never of Never look uh, at them again. Yeah. But you know, the little things, and I mean, I think this is especially true. I have little kids at home. There's like these little moments and it's like, those are the things that I, now that I'm familiar with this research, I say, I've got to remember those things because those are going to just disappear. And I've got to remember those ones. Those are the ordinary experiences. And it's like, I think that's part of what that, that sort of writing a letter to and then getting one back from your past self. I think that's, that's part of what's doing. Yeah. I, I, I love that. And I, so I'm a, I'm a journaler. I've been journaling for a long time. And there was, I, I usually write in a small little um, black journal that I write every day. But for a while, I wow. was doing it online on an online system that mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. type in. And what fa- what's fascinating for me is that the, the 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 black ones I look at maybe once a year and kind of look back, but I don't do it all that often and refer sure. back. The online one just sends me like three years ago, you wrote this and just a random piece. And so all of a sudden you're brought back into three, four, five, six years ago into that, you know, everyday moment. Oh, I took, you know, my son to soccer practice tonight and he scored a goal. And, but, you know, all of those kind of things that it, and it's really a different experience that was, I, I found because you're being kind of pushed into that moment and you're not necessarily searching for it. And um, I don't know if there's, but when you were talking about that, I don't know if there's a question in there, but it just yeah. reminded me of that. Kind of piece. <laughs> no, I, I, this is more of a comment than a question, but I, I, no, I, you know, and I think you're absolutely right. And I bet, you know, I mean, of course there's time hop and there's, you know, even like, 
Apple Photos. They do this sort of thing, and I, yeah. I but I love the idea of the sort of journaling. And what's what's nice about that is it there's an automatic component that force that pushes those past yeah. entries to you. That's yeah. great. It's yeah. just great. I love it. <laughs> well, well, how let's talk about some of the some of the observations that you've made with all of your own research and the tremendous amount of research that you cite in the book. What are things that we can do today to make tomorrow better for us? Well, the first thing is you got to buy the book. Um, <laughs> of course. Duh. We'll, we'll, right there. Double down on that. Actually, wouldn't wouldn't your tomorrow be better if you bought two books? Yeah, it makes a great gift. Um, uh, no. So, you know, I break it down to three categories. This is the way that I've been thinking about it. You know, the first category is to really try to bring the future in closer. Make that future, we talked briefly about making it more vivid making mm-hmm. it more emotional, drawing future you in to present you. What, in one way is the age progressed images. One way is a sort of letter writing conversation. And I think, you know, th- there's, there's other methods too. Actually, one that I think is really clever to think about the, an expanse of time in terms of days rather than years. There's a really fascinating study that found that, you know, if you, uh, by Daphne Oyserman and Neil Lewis, If I think about retirement as if it's happening in 30 years, compared to if I think about retirement as if it's happening in 10,950 days, the the day framing makes it feel like it's happening sooner, which is Mm. funny because it's a bigger number. But they, you know, we know days tick by. It's like, wow, I didn't realize it was in days. Um, Now, that's just that that may be sort of like a messaging type of intervention, but I like it because it really kind of changes that connection to future selves. So another bucket is to try to, well, start with the recognition that there's this, there's this like me now, this is the guy who's like planning. I want to, I want things to go a certain way. And then there's a future me. I want that guy to look back and say, you did it. I did it. And then there's, then there's the guy in the middle, the, you know, the eventual present me who's going to screw things up. Uh, you know, and it, this is the guy who, you know, it's like whether it's snacking or exercising or, you know, saying I'm not going to buy another drink tonight. And then after a drink or two, it's like, ah, come on, what the hell, you know, never that, happened to me. It never. I know, this is a foreign experience. I can tell you. Totally. But, uh, but theoretically uh, speaking, yes, theoretically speaking, one can imagine, you know, and, and there, you know, Commitment devices and pre-commitments really are so useful. And I know other researchers have, of course, talked about those, many of whom have been on on your show. Um, One of the things that I think is really important about commitment devices is to think about them through the lens of present and future selves. Because Mm -hmm. the thing about commitment devices is that they are incredibly effective. You know, in the book, I spotlight antabuse, which is a pill we take, one takes, uh, you know, if you're suffering from alcoholism. And what it does is essentially make it so that if you have a drink, you skip over all of the great parts and go <laughs> right to the hangover, like an yeah. epic hangover. Yeah, It's been called one of the most you know effective <laughs> treatments of alcoholism, and yet very few people take it up. Mm. And it, you think there's other forms of commitment devices like this that are really effective, but it's almost as if the punishments are so draconian, so harsh that... I'm not going to do it. And so I think one of the real, you know, tightrope balance, you know, the balancing acts to consider here is how do I pick a commitment device that has a punishment that's strong enough to 
to deter a certain behavior, but not so strong that I don't sign up for this commitment device to begin mm -hmm. with. And really balancing that out. And then, you know, the third bucket of strategies and, you know, making, <laughs> making tomorrow better today is to also try to make today easier. So mm -hmm. all of these things that we've been talking about and, you know, the, all of these sort of decisions that involve these trade-offs in time, quote-unquote trade-offs, thought about in the wrong way, it's always me now who has to make the sacrifice. And it's always, you know, future me who gets the benefit. It's like, um, you know, if I, if I want to save money, it's I'm the one that can't spend it. That guy can get, you know, a, a fatter bank account. You know, if it's I want to be healthier in five years, like, okay, it's like me tonight that can't eat the steak and the chocolate cake. But, you know, that guy has better cholesterol. It's like a, you know, it's like a bad relationship where you're always <laughs> the one. <laughs> you're always sacrificing, you know? And yeah. so you know, how can we try to make the quote-unquote sacrifices feel psychologically easier to undertake so that we do them. And so that it doesn't feel so painful because some of these things, you know, what's funny about some of these things is that it's not a trade-off, right? Like there are instances where exercising isn't just about, you know, pain now. It's like, it actually is good now. Yeah. Uh, it can be good. Yeah, uh, right. You know, and... um. And I talk about a lot of these other uh, examples in the book, but I think, you know, one, actually, I'll just say one that I really love. It, you can kind of fit into different buckets, but it, it's from Janet Schwartz. He's a behavioral researcher. And she had this insight that it was when she, she went to Coney Island to get a, you know, she was with some friends. She went to go get a hot dog and fries. I would, of course, what, what yeah. else are you going to do, right? What else are you going to do? Yeah. yeah. But she went right after they started doing the calorie labeling on, uh, no. <laughs> on the menu. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh. and she was shocked to find that the fries, I think, I think it was like 1100 calories for the side of fries, you know? And so she and her friends said, let's split them. Okay. We're going to each get a hot dog and we'll split the fries. So she had this insight, which is if I'm going to try to cut back, I have a goal of cutting back my calories. I could make it sacrificial and painful and cut back on the thing I love who's going to get a third of a hot dog, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or is there some way I could cut back on the periphery to still achieve the same goal? Mm -hmm. You know, she actually worked with a restaurant and they, you know, one of these like sort of um, fast food restaurants. It's kind of like a Panda Express type of place. And they offered people the option to get half the side, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so you get your orange chicken, the reason you came there, yeah. but now you get half a side of fried rice. Well, if you have a goal of cutting back on calories, you could cut back on the main thing. That's that kind of sucks. I mean, that's why you went there. <laughs> <laughs> that 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 is a fantastic frame. It, right? it really is. And, yeah. You know, and I think that's a way of making the present a little easier. I mean, it's also a commitment device of sorts. Some of these things are they're not mutually exclusive. Right. Well, and so so a uh, Dan Pink, uh, you got a nice quote from him on the cover of your book. Congratulations on that. Uh, he, great Thanks. guy. Um, but, you know, he, his last book was on regret. So how does looking yeah. back on, on regrets play a part in kind of looking forward to the future? Does it or is there? Uh, yeah, it absolutely does. And I mean, he's got he's sort of hard to match. Right. And his, you know, he's <laughs> he's such a way of like really boiling down an insight. And, I, you know, I remember one of the things that he talked about in the book, he has this he has a really powerful anecdote of a I found it really relatable and powerful of a of a 
mom, a woman who, you know, she's driving her kid around. The kid, I think it was something like spilled a milkshake, whatever it was. The kid spilled something. Mom immediately, you know, got frustrated, lashed out and quickly felt bad about it. You know, and it was one of these things where I think years later, she still thinks about that moment. And I've had, you know, I think probably many of us have had a moment like that parent or not, where we've snapped at somebody, done something. We say, I wish I hadn't done that. What's so interesting about that example is, at least in that particular story, she hasn't done it again. Yeah. You know, now, now, I mean, I think there's versions, you know, <laughs> there's things I've done parenting. I say, oh man, and I still do it. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I think the, the link there is regret, you know, can be, I mean, well, he, this book is called The Power of Regret. It's a powerful yeah. force to change yeah. future behavior because we can look back and say, I don't want that to happen again. But I think it, I think it has to go deeper than that. It's not that I just don't want it to happen again. What were the triggers? What were the things that happened that led to that? And how can I figure out how to change my environment or change whatever my response is and so on and so on so I don't do that uh, again? Yeah. it's in, I, uh, the, a, a friend of mine just told me this quote. He said, and I don't know if he stole this from somebody. So if he did, please let me know. But it was, um, you know, experience. We don't learn from experience. We learn from reflecting on experience. And so, yeah, that's great. you know, it's kind of the same thing that you're talking about with the, yeah, I can regret yelling at my, snapping at my kids. But unless I reflect on that and think about what are the triggers, what are the spots that, you know, made me do this, all of those factors, I'm, I'm probably likely if I get in that same situation, I might be a little more hesitant, but I'm probably going to still happen unless I actually go through the work to, to think through that and do that. So um, I think it's a great, great insight as you're going forward. So, you know, Kurt, I'll add, I'll add one thing to that, which is, you know, the, the literature on procrastination. Mm-hmm. One of the, you know, I think really interesting sort of uh, strands of research there is on um, self-forgiveness. Mm. And, you know, the idea is if I'm looking back and I've, I've, I'm not doing, what if I'm procrastinating on something because I feel bad about it? I feel bad about the fact that I haven't done it. I feel bad that it's, it's one of the reasons we procrastinate is because it's calling to mind all these negative feelings. Well, one way around that is to forgive past me for not have taken care of the thing, but importantly, it can't be a surface level forgiveness. You know, it's like any relationship, if, if, you know, I were to get into a fight with my spouse and I say, it's fine, but it's not really fine. Yeah. <laughs> then, <laughs> then it's it's not done. <laughs> it's not done. I mean, we all know this. Yeah. And the same true for our, the same thing is true for ourselves. You know, if yeah. I say, oh, whatever, it's fine that I didn't do that. Well, if I if I'm not really being genuine there, it's not gonna Yeah. And again, for our listeners, buy the book because you give some really good stories about that procrastination and the feeling of guilt and like the (laughs) dishes piling up and all the other pieces of some fun stuff with the book. Yeah, that I'm like, oh, I remember that. I did that. (laughs) Did you did you have to forgive yourself for being such a big Guster fan and becoming a fan of the National? (laughs) Oh, oh, man, it's funny that you say that. (laughs) I still, still have conversations with my roommate from from, from college ju- yeah junior year of college he the, the the closest he and I ever got into an actual fight was him saying if you play that album one more time I mean this is when you know we had CDs I think you know if you play that CD <laughs> one more time I I'm gonna physically <laughs> <laughs> end that piece of polycarbonate right now yeah yeah well yeah, yeah. well so your taste your musical tastes have changed is there any forecast for what your future musical taste might be like? 
It's such an interesting question because as soon as you start engaging in this exercise, the forecasting exercise, you realize how little we don't know, right? And mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's yeah. also, it's funny because I think a lot of times when we make some sort of future forecast or prediction, we mistakenly think, every, you know, oh, there has to be so much change. Like if you say, you ask people to draw what the cars will look like on the street in 20 years, they think they're all different. Well, there's lots of cars <laughs> on the street right now, on the road right now that are 20, 30 years old because they, car fleets don't just turn, turn over that turn fast. Over. You know, right. Right. I bet you I will still be playing, you know, the national a lot, but I'm sure there'll be someone else. I can't tell you who, you know, but it's like, look, have I completely stopped? I mean, this is really embarrassing, but have I completely stopped with <laughs> Guster? Like, no, you know, and it's like, it, you know, and I'll tell you when I got to college, I was in like a deep, deep Cat Stevens phase. I, I'm, I sure I'm wow. sounding like I'm very... I don't know. I don't know what generation I'm being put into right now, but uh, you know, I put him on for my kids, and they love him. And uh, you know, it's like really fun because I kind of revisit back to that, and you know, so will it completely change? I doubt it, but I bet the sort of portfolio will. You be won't rebalanced. be having you won't be having the national on repeat. Uh, uh, you know, twenty four seven. You might have them now, but. They might Probably be in the not. playlist, yeah. Probably not. So, but I, you know, I just went to see them two weeks ago. And, uh, oh, you did, yeah. You know, and I, 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 it's hard to imagine that I won't be paying money for their tickets, but I, <laughs> I bet I bet I won't. <laughs> good, good, good show. Did you enjoy it? It was great. It was great. But you know, yeah. I'll say, I've, I've seen I've seen them probably seven, eight, maybe nine times now. They're always great, but it's it's kind of funny because I, I can't. There's not a band I've seen that many times over a longer period of time. And the you know the other night we were we were there and Matt Berninger was fantastic, and yet I said, oh, his voice sounds a little hoarse, <laughs> and I realized, well, yeah, you know, he's been doing this for like a long yeah. time, and he's oh. in his fifties, oh. and you know, the yeah. first time I saw him, he was in his thirties, you know, late thirties, so <laughs> it's a yeah, little different. Things, things change. So this may this may be a bit of priming that we've been talking about these two bands, but if you found yourself on a desert island for a year alone Ooh. and you could take two musical artist catalogs with you so not just not one song or one record you get the whole catalog <laughs> which two artists would you take with you oh my god what a question you got to think really deeply about this because it can't just be stuff that i like but also like i mean god if i listen to the national on repeat on a desert island like that could be pretty I, I you could be really pretty. introspective, you know, in a way that's not great. <laughs> they they so, come to the nickname the Sad Dads. Yeah, there's a reason there. Pretty leg- legitimately, yeah. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. I'm gonna go with the Beatles for one because I mean the diversity. That's probably like the least informative answer because you know the Beatles. Works, um, <laughs> no, <but>. it works great. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great answer all because right, then, you're right. Lots of variety. You know, yeah. Big. And then let me, I mean, like then I'm back and forth because it could be Bell and Sebastian. Cause I feel like there's mm-hmm. a lot of variety there too. And they're, they're like also pretty happy, you know, yeah. I could kind of like, <laughs> uh, but you want somebody with some variety there. I don't know. So uh, I'll go with, Oh God! I, you know that I'm going to be up in the middle of the night and have come up with a better answer for this. But, uh, <laughs> oh, no. We'll send it to us in email <laughs> and we'll we'll add it in. Oh, how this is not that level question. <laughs> Do you guys edit these? Uh, we'll go with the Beatles and Bell and Sebastian. How about that? Oh, okay, right, right. Well, so you're not picking. 
national. I mean, even like if you have the Beatles to kind oh, of God. offset. No, you're right. You're you know? right. Now that I'm thinking about it, look, you know what? Let's swap out Val and Sebastian pop in the national because both both bands, there's a big um big catalog. Big catalog and yeah. There's a range of emotions there. Okay, yeah. great. Kurt, thanks for talking me off my bell, Sebastian. <laughs> I'm just saying, hey, you've already <laughs> talked about how they're going to stay with you, you know. You, you, after the year on the desert island, you may never want to listen to them again. However, at that point, that might be, it might be good. Oh. Hal Hirschfield, thank you, thank you, thank you for being a guest on Behavioral Grooves today. This was a lot of fun. Hey, it was so fun to talk to you guys. This is great. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I share ideas on what we learned from our discussion with Hal, have a free-flowing conversation, and groove on whatever else comes into our, not our, today's brains. We are living in a future world, Tim, that we are, that, that person, who is that person? Who is that it's, future me? It is me, but it's not the me of today. Oh, that's deep man yeah. <laughs> man this is so like oh we could have like with Hal it, we, we'd we like needed another hour just to get into the philosophical implications <laughs> of all this stuff oh man it was so tempting so, so this is this is a piece that I, I want to to get into though because this idea that our future self is a different person than us and we know that at some level I think but thinking about it and this is the piece that he said, is that, is that because that future self is a different person, is that comforting or is it scary? What, what do you think? For me, at this point in my life, it's comforting. Oh. It's actually really comforting for me right now. And I, I go back to Dan Gilbert's work uh, on you know studying 20-year-olds and 29-year-olds and then 60-year-olds and 69-year-olds and, and having those nine-year differences studied in the way that we think about, well, how, how well can we predict our future? And every nine years increment, we're looking back and going, wow, there's a whole bunch of things that I had no idea was going to happen. And while I'm okay with the, I had no idea it was going to happen, that's life is unpredictable. What I'm comforted by is being able to just be okay with the idea that nine years from now, I'm going to be different. Now, there are some things that I can do to orchestrate myself towards that, but okay. there's a bunch of things that are just going to happen that are going to influence who I am, and that's okay. All of it's just okay, because it's still going to be me. It's just going to be a different me. <laughs> Which is the, the part that just still, to, to a degree, I, I, I agree with you that there's an element that is comforting, that we can change, we can grow, and that there's still an aspect of me that's in there. It's just not the me of today. Mm -hmm. But that's also, to a certain degree, scary because I don't necessarily know who that future me is and will today's me like that future me? I, I look back and think the high school me, would that person like the me that I've become? Yeah, right, right. That, I think that that's a good question. I could, and, and I can answer that for you. He wouldn't. 
He goes, God, I thought you would have had a lot more hair, man. You are just the God. What happened to that mane that yeah, you had? The thing that you head. used to like in my dreams when I still have hair and I, I flick. Flick, it gets in my eyes and I have to flick it out and I don't have that anymore. No, but going back to this idea that I think there is a scary aspect of that of, you know, 10 years from now, nine years from now, as you talked about that, is my political beliefs, are they going to be different? Is my belief about um, God and religion, is that going to be different? Is my um, who I hang out with, is that going to be different? Am I going to still, you know, love my family the way I love my family, right? And and to the degree, I go, yeah, it's probably going to, those things are probably going to stay the same, but. But they might not. But they might not. Yeah. And so, and are you scared by it? What you you were asking me? I mean, I I right now I'm taking some solace in the idea that my future self is different from my current self. Are you are you comfortable with that? Happy with it? Excited about it? Uh, a little nervous about it? I, well, it's it's interesting because how do we define ourselves, and how does that play into this? So I think there's a part of me that is comforted by it, this idea that we can grow, that we can change, that I can. I'm not stuck with this version of me, this version 5.6, you know, of Kurt, right? (laughs) I'm 56 years old, so I'm 5.6. I like that. You know, is going to be version 6.0 sometime soon, and then 6.5, and then 7.0, and 7.5, et cetera. And those versions will be different. And that's, there's a bit of that's, that's comforting, but then there's that bit that says, Will the present me, if I was to look at that future person and knew who that came to be, would I be going, oh, yeah, that's a pretty cool guy? Or is that like an asshole, you know? Well, you know, I've been reading a bunch of John Locke recently. Oh, the the 18th century (laughs) British philosopher. One of, you know, of all my friends, you know, there's I can count on one finger who has recently been reading John Locke. And that would be you. And. Just for the sake of if if there are any philosophers out there who really hate John Locke, I'm not a big fan of John Locke overall. Let's just put it that way. I, I have a lot of disagreements with his approach. But the one thing that I found really interesting is that when he talks about personal identity, he talks about it in terms of psychological continuity. And I think that there's something really interesting about this that, you know, 200 years ago or however many years ago, he was... He was kind of thinking about uh, identity or the self as being something that was founded in consciousness and memory, not about the substance of the body or the soul. So he kind of looked at this idea of you are what you think and what you can remember about yourself. But that goes again, we had that conversation with Hal, right? This idea that is it memory because we forget. I can't remember before I was five. I can't remember what I ate last week. You know, as he said, is our memory of who we were, does that define who we are today? I think there's an impact, but is that truly ourself? And then he goes in and he talks about, you know, Nina Strominger, who, who, and if I'm sorry if I mispronounced that name, but this idea of moral self, that there is... Mm -hmm an essential moral traits, this idea, as he mentioned, are you a happy-go-lucky person? Are you 
you know, whatever. And actually, t- going back to you, are are you the guitar playing Tim, or have you changed? And as as Hal asked, are you just on a musical hiatus, or are you a brand new non musical Tim? I have recently discovered, and recently, as in like the past couple of weeks recently rediscovered my musical self and feel more connected to that now than I have for the last five years, probably. Oh. And feel really deeply connected to it as a core part of who I am, as a really defining part uh, internally of who I am. Even though I, I don't play out professionally, I'm, I, I've started writing again, I'm rehearsing more regularly, and it feels so good to be connected to that aspect of who I am. And I'll I'll never make a living doing it, right? But that's but that's not the musical me. The musical me is just the expression part of it. It's the it's the writer, the player, the singer. So going back to your teenage, young college age self, <laughs> is that identity different than? Were you going to make a living on this? Were you going to be identified, self-identify as? I am a musician, and now you're identified as I'm a behavioral scientist. Totally different. Totally different. And even, yeah, that that my musical self, my musical self-identity when I was 13 or 17 or 23 is definitely different than it is uh, today. It's it's dramatically different, and that's okay. I actually like that. I'm I'm really happy with it. And this this is part of what gives me comfort about thinking the future is going to be different. It doesn't mean that it's going to be bad. Yeah. It's just it's just going to be different, and I'm going to find a way to make peace with it. And I think there's an element of rosy retrospection in this as well. This idea that looking back, I'm going to say, well, there's a rosy kind of perspection on today, not retrospection, but a a rosy look at who I am today. Well, I like who I am today, even if my 17-year-old self might not. Yeah, right. And I think there's there's something to be said for that, and there is some comfort in that. It it is interesting. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask you, uh, uh, you're doing a bunch of traveling. Mm -hmm. You're a big traveler, and uh, (laughs) how just, I, I love the metaphors, like the missing your flight poor trip planning and packing the wrong clothes. I thought that those were lovely, actually. Yeah. Um, but it's got to be on your mind. I mean, you're going to be on planes for the next So I'm weeks. I'm actually traveling to Norway and, and Denmark, leaving uh, in about today, oh, uh, under 12 hours. So uh, getting on yeah. a flight with my family and going there. And it's really interesting because the packing the wrong clothes is something that's on my mind right now, just literally from this perspective, because... It's 90 plus degrees here in Minneapolis today. And looking at the weather in Oslo, Norway, where we're going to land, it's in the 60s. Yeah. And yet I'm sitting here going, oh, I need to pack a lot of T-shirts and shorts. And I'm like, on oh, wait, no, maybe I need to be thinking. But it's really hard for me to put myself in that because right now I feel <sighs> I, I have this like gleam, that shine that you get from the little... You know, you're just you're you're sweating a little bit and you're just feeling hot overall. And I, I it's like I can't pack a sweater. That's like, why would I pack a sweater? That's like I can't even think about putting a sweater on right now. And I think there is a really interesting piece of that. A right? correlation that, for you, isn't yes, it? Yes. Yeah. And so that correlation to 
I can't even think about what that future self is going to be like. As we just talked about, I don't know. I don't know what the weather is going to be in the future. I don't know what I should be wearing. Well, even if you do know what the weather is, you like you know what the weather is in Oslo. You know what that is. Yeah. And yet it's still hard to pack a sweater. Yeah. Because because you're hot right now. Yeah. And I think it's interesting this idea that we we don't accept the fact that who we're going to be is different than who we are. And I I think about this really from uh, the perspective of that teenager that we talked about. I think about it from my teenage kids right now. Like if I ask them, how much are you going to change over the next 10 years? They might say, I don't know. I think they'd, you know, if I dug down into it, I think they would say, I'm not going to change that much at all. This is the the Mm -hmm. things I like. And I'm sitting there going, oh, such foolish, naive kids. (laughs) But then I attribute that to me, too, because I'm looking forward and kind of, you know. And again, you actually know what the weather is going to be tomorrow where you're going and it's going to be different than today and yet it's still hard to pack for it yeah and and i think that that's really different from what it's like when we're children it's there's always the what are you going to be when you grow up kind of kind of question how how does that get drowned out of us like uh, it's so easy for kids to imagine themselves being anything and being very different from what they are at that moment I mean, even in college, right? Do you like, what's your career? What are you going to do? All those right. things. And we don't ask that, you know, after the age of 25, maybe 30, those questions kind of disappear. Well, you're on that track. You're going to be this. You are an accountant. You are a mm-hmm. behavioral scientist. You are a musician. You are a construction worker. Why? Why don't we continue to say who are you going to be? And those are careers. Right, right. That's just, and, that's just one that's element. one of element of it. I think we even probably less so ask ourselves, who are we going to be from those other aspects of our life, even probably yeah. earlier. Those are like, once you're a teenager, I'm not going to be a different type. I'm not going to be a moody, you know, a goth person if I'm not that or vice versa, right? So what about my faith journey? Am I, am I you know, still going to be going to church, you know? Yeah in 20 years am i st- am, uh, what's my relationship with my kids going to be like yeah. am i going to have kids i mean i think that there's not that we have to solve all these things but i think it's worth giving them some consideration yeah. just to at the very least prepare our hearts and our minds for the idea that in 5 years life is going to be different so help me help me do this tim help me keep all the really good aspects of myself and then change just all those bad aspects of myself. So my future self is the epitome, that the that perfect Kurt. Can you help me make sure that that happens? So I'll be your ass-kicking partner. How about that? <laughs> okay. All right. So I think we've we've run this gamut that wraps up this grooving session. And, and Groovers, we hope that you learned something and that you will be able to start working today to make your tomorrow better with some of the aspects that we've talked about today. You just say that so beautifully. You've always got this lovely epistle at the end of our grooving sessions that I just love. (laughs) I think you write most of them, so I just (laughs) read what's on the script. (laughs) There was a lot of great information in this episode. Um, And so help out your future self. 
that would be like for us as well. Yeah. Help, help out Tim and Kurt's future self. Bye. <laughs> yeah. With giving us actually, we're giving us a little love. Wherever you listen to your podcast, just, just show us some love. Show us a, from, in Apple or Spotify what, or wherever what, what else. What does just, love look like, Tim? Is it, looks, is it like, oh, an emoji? Is it? Is it, it could uh, be. Yeah. It could be a rating. It could be just like a quick five-star rating. It could be a quick review. It could be, how about this? Like you could, you could benefit your future self and our future selves by sharing this with someone that you think would enjoy behavioral grooves. Oh, I love just that. Just tell them, just use your, use your words. Or, or just, you know, forward on in an email or a social media post. Hey guys, yeah. you should listen to this episode because yeah. it will help you become a better person in the future by learning stuff today. And yeah. not only was there great information in this episode, there's really some, I, I have to say, I, I really did love Hal's book. Yeah, um, loved it. We don't always love every book that we, we get um, from the authors on the show. We like them, but we don't love them. Uh, this one I, I, I really did love. So uh, recommend that you go out and buy it and help your future self find their group.